You're about to listen to a message by Pastor Ogi Ogui, the lead pastor of Circle Church International. He envisions all men living Christ-centered lives. Be blessed as you listen. Praise the Lord. All right, let's read the word of God before we sit down. Philippians chapter 1 verse 25. Philippians chapter number 1 verse number 25. Philippians chapter 1, verse 25. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hi, Chooks. We're waiting for you. The entire church is waiting for you. Anyway, we have physical Bibles, right? Philippians chapter 1. Okay. All right. It says, Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you, or with all of you, for your advancement and joy in the faith. Father, we thank you for your love and your kindness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the teaching of your word. We thank you because the entrance of your word brings light and it gives understanding to the simple. Lord, we thank you because in the beginning was the word and the word was of God and the word was God and the same was of God in the beginning. And all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life and life was the light of men. That light shines in darkness and darkness cannot comprehend it, we pray. That as the word of God is taught today, that the light of God's word will shine in the dark corners of our hearts and bring illumination in the name of Jesus. The word dwelt amongst us and we beheld those glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Lord, we pray that as the word is taught today, that we will see Jesus as you would have us see him in the name of Jesus. We pray that as the word of God is taught today, that Jesus is glorified and we are edified. In Jesus' name we have prayed. In Jesus' name we have prayed. All right, say hi to someone sitting right next to you. It's nice to see you. It's nice to have you in church. Give them a high five, an elbow bump. It's nice to see you. And then sit down if you can. Praise the Lord. Thank you very much. You are much appreciated. First of all, before I go into the teaching, allow me to apologize for the temperature issues. Um, I think this is the first time we're ever experiencing this in church here. Um, and I think it's just a matter of negligence, but I believe that they have turned on the air conditioning now. All right, so in a matter of minutes, um, everywhere is going to be back to the normal chilling temperature that you all love. Praise the Lord. But you can take God's word in heat, right? Right? Aha, uh-huh, okay. We can take God's word in heat, ba? Uh-huh. Many of us watched my use match yesterday in heat, and we enjoyed it. We enjoyed Ronaldo's goal, amen, or goals, praise the Lord. Anyway, all right, Philippians chapter 1, verse 25, it says, Knowing this, it says, I shall remain and continue with you, you all, for the KJV says, your progress and joy in the faith. This month, um, we are running a Bible teaching series, and um, the teaching series is titled The Bible Experience, and Basically, the teaching series is a crash course. Crash course because it can be more elaborate. Um, but it's a crash course on everything the believer needs to know on how to study the Bible. The Bible is a good book. Um, but it's a book of many words. And like anything that speaks too much, it can be taken out of context. Right? And so... It has been used in many places to perpetrate many types of evils in the name of the Lord said or the Bible says. So how exactly is the believer 
supposed to study scripture. So that's exactly what we're going to look through today. But before I start talking about that, I want to point out something important. And it is that Philippians 1.25 says, I'll remain with you for your progress and joy in the faith. And during the course of the week, I was thinking about something and I realized that the only way a believer will truly experience joy in the faith is if there's progress in the faith. Your, the joy of your salvation is found in the progress that you experience in salvation. Or another way to say it is that growth begets joy. Do you understand? Growth begets joy. That you can look at your life pre-Jesus or pre-Christ and look at your life post-Christ and thank God for all he did for you. You know, what salvation has made out of you in the few months, weeks, years that you've been saved. And then you look at your life, okay, I started going to this church, and in four months, in five months, in six months of attending this church, I can tell that I have experienced this amount of growth in my life, spiritually. I can tell that um, I have become, um, you know, um, one of the most important things about salvation one of the best definitions I've ever heard on salvation is that salvation is a miracle of changed desires. So you see Paul say that, let him who stole steal no more. So I used to have these proclivities. I used to have this, um, intent, um, this, um, the propensity to do certain things. But because of salvation, because of the work of Christ, because of the work of the Spirit in my life, there's change. I'm growing, there's progress. Do you understand? Oh, I, I used to have serious, I, I used to have serious anger issues. I used to throw temper tantrums and get very angry and do many things that I'm not supposed to do. But I can see that in the few months that I was saved, I still get angry. But I can, I, I know the Holy Spirit is cautioning me and he's putting me on the check. And there's, I'm becoming a better person. Joy in the faith comes from progress in the faith. Praise the Lord. And a very important marker for progress in the faith is Bible knowledge. Let me tell you, you are limited as a Christian by how much you know of God's word. Is the truth. And I'm not talking about, as you would find out as I teach today, um, some people, when I make that kind of statement, they say, mm-hmm, and then what they, they are thinking in their minds is, yes. Um, I have to have more rhema or revelation. But there is, there is this misconstrued or misguided idea of revelation that a lot of people have. So some people want to have this type of fellowship with angels that nobody else has. Or you want to be God's best friend, you know, separate from the way he loves every other person. Do you understand that, that God doesn't love any believer more than he loves the next? <laughs> Praise the Lord. But you are only as grown as you know. It doesn't matter how long you've been in the faith. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, till today, there are people who believe the earth is flat. Till today. Those people fly in airplanes, though. They fly in airplanes. But they believe the earth is flat. 
Some of them are elderly people. Right? And they believe the earth is flat. Knowledge is, the veracity of knowledge is not validated by age. How truthful or how true something is, a claim is, is not invalidated by how long they've said it. No matter how long you tell a lie, it's still a lie. Do you get? No matter how, how long you propagate falsehood, it's still falsehood. So growing up as um, a young preacher, so um, many times I have conversations with certain people and then I correct some mindsets or prevalent ideologies and theologies in the body of Christ. And then you see people say, do you know more than all these people that have been saying it for years? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> with all due respect. Right? If you went to school to study medicine and then you now have some, uh, every one of our parents or all of our parents are doctors in their own right. Just touch your neck, feel your head and tell you to go buy a testonate or a pialaxin. You know, they, they always know what is wrong. Or you drink this mixture, do this seven times and then you'll be fine. But then you went to school to study medicine. And so your mom says, drink this. And then you, the doctor says, no, don't do that. And I say, ah, ah. I've been doing this for 20-something years. Well, I'm trained to do it. I'm a doctor. I'm trained. How long you've been practicing a lie does not validate the lie. Do you understand? So when it comes to the pursuit of truth, it doesn't matter how long you've believed a thing. When higher, better knowledge comes, you abandon the lower, weaker one. Does that make sense? So 2 Timothy chapter 2, um, verse 15, which is our running text for um, the Bible study series. It says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He says, study to show yourself approved. And I, and I told you last two weeks how that word study is not just to read. Reading is part of it. But when he said study, in fact, um, when you see some translations, like, can I get the HCSB or NLT? It says, be diligent to show yourself approved. Look at that. Can you see it? So that phrase, be diligent, is replaced in the KJV by the word study, right? So when Paul was saying, study to show yourself approved, he wasn't just saying, oh, just read hard. No. He says, give diligence, give due diligence to show yourself approved of God. A workman that needs not to be. So what is due diligence? Due diligence is not anything they tell you, you swallow it hook, line, and sinker. Do you understand? That's not due diligence. Due diligence is we have taught today. Now, as we are teaching, Bible verses will be quoted. You write them down. And when you get home, what do you do? You, you find some time and go through what was taught. Pastor said this. Is it true? Is it not true? If you are not very, um, if you're not very um, satisfied with your findings from study, hello, pastor, you said this, I read this, explain. Okay, but okay, you didn't consider this other place, okay. Or the pastor sees what you say, and then you're giving him a cost to study. I would rather have a church of people who give me cost to go and study than people who just follow everything you are saying, hook, line, and sinker. You enter trouble like that. So he says, study to show yourself approved 
unto God. He says, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So if there is a right way to do it, then there is a wrong way to do it. But the prevalent idea in the body of Christ is my revelation, your revelation, all revelations are correct. Do you know how dangerous that statement is? He says, rightly dividing the word of truth, which means that if there is a right way to divide the word of truth, then there is a wrong way to divide the word of truth. And we, as Bible students, must seek to be on the right side of that division. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. Another thing, I'm just trying to do a recap of what I've taught you already um, on this. Bible interpretation is objective. It's not left to you. Amen. Uh, It's not left to you. It's not what I think it says. If I call um, Jason, for instance, and I say, Jason, go to Festac. I write him a letter and I say, go to Festac and do this. Or we don't write letters anymore. I send him a text message, right? Go to Festac and get me this. Is my text open to interpretation? That's so. Jason will now look at the text. Go. G-O. General overseer. (laughs) What I'm getting from this text is that there's a general overseer somewhere called Festac. Is that what I'm asking him to do? It's funny, but that's how a lot of people read the Bible. When you read the text, you seek to discover what the author intended. Not what you want it to sound like or look like. Praise the Lord. The Bible does not change to suit our preferences. It is what it is. You go there and fish what it is. (laughs) Praise the Lord. So Bible study must be objective. Do away with preconceived notions. Let me tell you how you know you're in trouble when you're doing Bible study. When you open a verse of scripture and there's something that you thought it meant and then you read it and read it and read it and you can't really see what you thought it meant. But you're now looking for a way to make sure it means what you thought you... Uh, you're in trouble now. If I said ABC, I did not say XYZ. Don't try to twist ABC into XYZ. So if the Bible has said ABC, don't try to make it XYZ or BAC. Do you get? Stick to what it has said the way it has said it. Praise the Lord. You know, you have a lot of people. You climb up the altar... And then you say, what I want to teach you today, nobody in the body of Christ has taught it before. And you say it with pride. Like it's a thing to be confident about. You are in trouble. It's like a mathematician or a scientist waking up to say, the principle I'm about to apply, nobody has ever discovered it or used it. You have to ask a question, why? Why has nobody... ah, In all the years of human existence, nobody has discovered it. And then you only you now, you want to apply it. Especially when it contradicts what every other person knows. You'll be, you'll be surprised. You'll be it's like you write exams, right? And then you finish writing exams. Does that thing happen to you? 
And then you come out of the exam hall and everybody is saying what the answer was. And so this person got um, 44, this other person got 62, this one got 44. Maybe like 10 people got 44, but your answer was Cardinal State. (laughs) Would you be proud of yourself or would you get scared immediately? The Bible cannot mean today what it never meant before. (laughs) Do you understand? It can't mean today what it didn't mean when Paul wrote it, or Peter, or James, or John, whoever wrote. It can't mean. Strangely enough, if Paul attended some Sunday services, he will write notes because he'll be shocked. Never heard this before. They will be quoting Paul. I'll probably be like, wow, this is new. (laughs) There is something called orthodoxy. That is, to preserve the traditional um, message, the way it was delivered. Do you understand? And as a believer, what we are going for is orthodoxy. As a church, we are looking to be orthodox. You know, there is a a popular definition of orthodox today. Um, Generally, orthodox churches are the boring churches. And I'm not saying any church is boring, but Catholic, Anglican churches, um, where everybody just, we sing hymns and then we move very slowly. The sermons are really read from... um, a book, you know, that's what we call orthodox churches. But the word orthodox means traditional. So as a church, we should seek to be orthodox. When it comes to Bible study, we ought to be orthodox. When Paul was writing 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, when he was writing all of those books, what did he mean? What was he trying to communicate? Praise the Lord. The issue is, you hardly have a lot of teachings on how to study the Bible. There are some things that hitherto we have assumed that they come instinctively to the believer. Prayer. Bible study. They just think that, oh, it comes instinctively. You just know how to pray now. Just pray now. Just go and study your Bible. Even to read the physics textbook, did they just say go and read it? You were taught how to study. So, for instance, you have people who have been Christians for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and don't know that the difference between Old Testament and New Testament is more than just a white blank page in the Bible. There is a full difference. So the Bible is split into Old Testament and New Testament. And it's not split because um, the writer of the Old Testament, the writers of the Old Testament, when they got to Malachi, they were like, let's not give them information overload. Let's calm down. Everybody rest. Then divide the page, white page. Let's now start a new one, New Testament. No. So for instance, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1. Let's do some Bible study. I have, a lot to, I have a lot to teach today. I hope I have enough time to cover all of it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Everybody read together. One, two, go. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come. Stop, hold on. So he says, since the law. And um, if you've been a member of this church long enough, you would have heard me say that the law, when used in the New Testament, does not necessarily referred to just the Ten Commandments, right? Now, raise your hand if before I said this, you thought every time the law was mentioned, it was the Ten Commandments. Raise your hand. 
All right, but then put your hands down. The law does not necessarily refer to um, the Ten Commandments. Um, let me see if I have an example to give you. Because of time, no. All right, so when you read the Old Testament, right, the Ten Commandments were not given in isolation. They were given together with two other things. Something called the ordinances, remember that? And the worship system. Ordinances, when you read Deuteronomy, you see Moses talking about if somebody owes you money for this number of years, after seven years, forgive the debt. That's an ordinance, right? Um, you see Moses saying, if, you want to, if, you, if this person should die, marry the wife. All of those things were ordinances, right? And then you had the worship system. The worship system, the sacrifice of bulls, goats, all of that. They were the worship system, right? So when the New Testament says the law, the New Testament is referring to three things. The Ten Commandments, the ordinances, and the worship system. Do you understand? So when he now says, so it will make more sense when you read Hebrews 10, where he says, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the actual form of those realities. So, for instance, remember when David sinned, when he slept with Bathsheba, and then the prophet came and told him, you have sinned, you will die. And, and what did David do? David rent, rented, he tore his clothes. Kids, if you can be very annoying. He tore his clothes, right? And then he wore akbarai, that sackcloth, Right? And then he poured ashes on his head and then started offering sin offerings, burnt offerings, and all types of offerings for his sins. That was under the law. That was a worship system under the law. But the writer of Hebrews says that all of those things were not able to actually wash or purify the people who partook in them. Do you understand? So there is a reason why, and, and this is it. He says it here. He says there were only a shadow of the things to come and not the reality. Are you following this? Are you following this? There were only a shadow. Now, that word there, shadow, is not just shadow, like I have my shadow here now. But Paul was giving a, not Paul, the writer of Hebrews. I believe it was Paul, but then we don't know. Um, the writer of Hebrews was playing with words. So, for instance, if a carpenter wants to make a chair, not Nigerian carpenters, they just start. They just get wood and cut it and start. Ideally, as an engineer, you should draw. You dimension 10 meters to this place, 10 meters here, or 10 centimeters there. But no, in Nigeria, they just look at it. Mutu, bring saw blade. Just cut it, cut it, cut it, and do chair for you. So... But ideally, if um, an engineer or a carpenter wants to do something, you have a drawing. And the drawing is indicative or significant or significantly tells you what you should do when you're doing the real thing. Now, can you sit on the sketch of a chair? Well, the sketch of the chair shows you or gives you hope for the real chair. Do you understand? That's what he was talking about, that the law was the sketch. The substance was Christ. I think it was Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9. 16. Alright, so let's go there. Colossians 2, 16. Colossians 2, 16. Alright, everybody read together. One to go. 
Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink, and in, or in a matter of festival, or a new moon, or what? Next verse. Next verse. <laughs> All right, everybody read together as loud as you can. One, two, go. These are the shadow of... The substance is... Do you see that? This is what the writer of Hebrews was saying. But now, in what portion of the Bible is the law highlighted? The Old Testament, right? And the New Testament is, in, uh, is, is where you have the coming of the Christ. Which means that the separation between Old Testament and the New Testament is the birth and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So when we are talking now, let me ask you a very important question or an intelligent question. When Jesus was alive, was he alive in the Old Testament or in the New Testament? Wave at me if it is Old Testament. Put your hand down. Wave at me if it is New Testament. Put your hand down. Wave at me if you don't know. You can't kill yourself. <laughs> All right, put your hand down. Ah, there's no time to teach this. But Hebrews chapter 9 teaches us that every covenant is ratified by the blood of its testator. Do you understand that? Hebrews chapter 9. So, in fact, it's like this. If you have a blood covenant, the blood covenant is sealed when the blood is used, right? Does that make sense? So, and the word testament is actually covenant. Did you know that? All right. So, what ratified or sealed the New Testament? What puts the New Testament in effect? The blood of Jesus. Does that make sense? So, at what point did the New Testament begin? At his death. Does that make sense? So, the New Testament section of your Bible is not where Malachi ended or where Jesus was raised from the dead, where he died and was. Do you get it now? So there is a way. And why is this important? Um, trust me, um, I think I'll talk about it during camp meeting. I think I will. But then um, I can do, we can, if we start talking about Hebrews 9, how many of you at Liberty Bible course? We spent a lot of time on Hebrews 9, right? Uh, so I can't spend that amount of time again. But there is a way you study the Old Testament that you don't study the New. Do you understand? If you are holding the sketch of the chair, you interact with it differently than when you are interacting with the chair itself. Does that make sense? Yes, so, in there, so there's something interesting that happens when you're reading the Bible. You see, several times, the Old Testament is referred to as the mystery. And the New Testament is referred to as the revelation of the mystery. Do you get this? Now, common example. How many of you remember the song? Abraham's blessings are mine. Raise your hand if you know the song. Yeah. Raise your hand if you don't know the song. I would have been shocked because... That song is a banger. Another banger. I'm just joking. Galatians chapter 3 verse 6 to 8. So let's, let's look at an Old Testament concept that was explained in the New Testament. Alright. Galatians chapter 3 verse 6 to 8. It says, just as Abraham believed God 
and it was credited to him for righteousness. So understand that those who have faith are what? Remember that song, Father Abraham had many sons. Remember that song? Good. He says, those who have faith are Abraham's sons. Now, the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and foretold the good news to Abraham, saying what? All the nations will be blessed. So what was Abraham's blessing? Was it that Abraham, Isaac sowed in the land and he reaped that year a hundredfold? No. Was it that Abraham was rich in cattle? No. What really was Abraham's blessing? The scripture foresaw that the Gentiles will be made righteous by faith. And so God told Abraham beforehand that in you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. So Abraham's blessing, the blessing that God blessed Abraham with was justification, righteousness by faith. Do you understand this? And so when we sing Abraham's blessings are mine. What you are singing is not that the wealth that Abraham had is yours. or the, I mean, if it was wealth we were going for, we would have said Solomon's blessings are mine, amen? Let's go for the best. So, it's not that the wealth that Abraham had is yours. Or the, the riches of Abraham. Think about it. One time, God said to Abraham, he says, you're... Um, your, your children, your seed will be like the sand of the seashore. Right? How many children did Abraham have? Biologically. Two. Isaac and Ishmael. Is that the sand, sand of seashore? That's less than the number of spaghetti sticks in a spaghetti nylon, right? He had just two kids. Okay. Um, Hebrew times. Um, he, um, slaves that were born in the household they're considered children of the house so even if he had 500 slaves born in his house, you know how many 500 is that's still not countable what was God's promise when he told him that he would give him children that would number like the seashore, it had nothing to do with Isaac or Ishmael it had everything to do with the number of people who in years to come will be justified by faith just like Abraham was justified by faith. And so because we are justified by faith, we are children of Abraham. Do you see it there? So he says, um, just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, so understand that those who have, who have faith are Abraham's sons. Do you see the interplay of Old Testament and New Testament? There's a way you must study the Old Testament in light of the New Have you seen all those, there are these jotters that they make, or these pens that you can write with, but the pen is only visible on, under ultraviolet light. Have you seen that before? Good. Or you watch all these detective shows where they have scrubbed the place clean, but the blood can still be seen under ultraviolet light. Remember that? Think about it like that. That all of the Old Testament is that hidden ink, and the light, the ultraviolet light, that reveals it is the New Testament. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. This is why in the epistles, the Old Testament is referred to as a mystery. Now, there is a common understanding that we have of the word mystery, and it is something that cannot be understood. No, 
A mystery, rather, is something that was hidden for a while to be revealed under the right circumstances. That's what a mystery is. Praise the Lord. Any new, any teaching that engages mysteries without revealing the mysteries is not a New Testament teaching. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Oh, there's such there's a scripture that I love. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse twelve to thirteen. I want to show you something. Second Corinthians chapter three, from verse twelve to thirteen. So if, if a pastor comes up and he says, I will show you a mystery. It was revealed to me by God. And that mystery cannot be explained. They just, they just take it like that. It's a mystery. So I explain it now. It's God that showed me. It's a mystery. It's not New Testament teaching. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Why am I saying all of this to you? Remember we started with... Um, knowing this, I will continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Listen, if you will make progress, you have to measure up to the standard. Are you hearing me? Good. The Bible cannot mean differently in Nigeria and then mean something else in the United States. It can't. It can't. I've heard, you know, in the place or in the bid to exalt the importance of the flow of power in, in meetings. And you know we believe strongly in the flow of God's power, right? Good. So in the bid to exalt the flow of power, a lot of preachers, not just preachers, but a lot of Christians downplay the importance of doctrine. Do you realize that you will flow better with power if you understood better God's doctrine? Because none of us has outdone Paul or Peter or James or John. We've not outdone them. And these people knew God's doctrine properly. So you hear things like theologians are just dead men with ideas. Head knowledge is all in the mind. Have you heard things like that before? That spiritual knowledge should not be in the head. It should be in the heart. It must first be in the head before it goes to the heart. Are you hearing what I'm saying? It must first, spiritual knowledge must first of all be in the head before it makes its way to the heart. If it doesn't go through the head, it is trash. God did not intend our brains to be dormant when we come to church. Are you hearing me? Otherwise, what was Paul teaching people for the space of two and a half years, morning and night? Have you thought about it before? Morning and night, two and a half years. The only way you can achieve that is if you have a curriculum. We covered this. Now that we know this, we will know this. Now that we know this, we will know this. Now that we know this, we'll talk about this. Then talk about this. Then talk about that. Not that you just come and then for one week all you're talking about is, and it's okay if you're talking about marriage. But what you are saying about marriage, what you're saying about the believer and his finances, what you're saying about all of these matters must have strong doctrinal persuasion. 
Are you hearing me? So as a believer, as a Christian yourself, you will do due diligence. You will study. Listen, you know you are grown when you can't eat everything. It's only children that put everything they see on the floor in their mouth. Only kids do that. So as a Christian, at what point would you be able to say, this sounds nice, but it's not true. Listen, I believe strongly that a major reason why we have pulpits that are tainted with wrong doctrine is because we have lazy believers. People that don't study the Bible. Because how will somebody... Well, let me not look for trouble. Are we at 2 Corinthians chapter 3? All right. It says, therefore, having such a hope, we use what? Can you give it to me in the KJV? Because the phrase translated great boldness was used differently in the KJV. All right. Everybody read together. I want to go. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use what? So when we are engaging in New Testament teaching, our speech should be plain. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're not hiding anything. We are saying it as it is. There is nothing in the Bible that is not for the understanding of the believer. Are you getting me? Nothing in scripture is hidden to you. Nothing. If you don't know it, it's because you haven't studied. Or you haven't been taught. He says, we use great plainness of speech. And not as Moses. So, he, I've taught this before in church. So, he, he makes a reference to what happened when Moses came down from the mountain. And his face was glowing. And what did Moses do? He put a veil over his face. He says, not as Moses, who put a veil over his face? That the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of what was being abolished. So it is the law, what was being abolished? What was he talking about when he was talking about what was being abolished? The law, right? What did Moses um, give the children of Israel? The law, are you getting it? So when he said Moses put a veil over his face, he was just making reference to how the law, and by extension the Old Testament, was a mystery. But when we turn to God, that veil is done away with. If you read further, he says that. When we turn to God, that veil is done away with. So, any practice, any New Testament practice must be explainable by the work of Christ. And every Old Testament practice finds their perfect explanation in the work of Christ. Are you getting what I'm saying? Let me now, let me come home. Water baptism, for instance, finds its explanation, its perfect explanation in the work of Christ. We don't just dip water, people into water for, what, what does that mean? Have you thought about it before? What does it mean? It finds its perfect explanation in Christ. He says, Colossians chapter 2 verse 16 says, let nobody hold you or hold you or blame you with respect to holy days or the Sabbath day or the new moon or this type of festival. All of those things, he says, they are but a shadow of things to come. There is no ordinance in the New Testament, sir. All of it is done away when we see Christ. It will be silly of me to want a chair a carpenter has made a chair, but I insist on carrying the sketch around. What am I using the sketch to do? 
Praise the Lord. Even communion that Christ himself instituted. Of course, he didn't institute it. It was in, in accordance with the Passover. But some people claim Christ himself. Is, he instituted it before his death. Which makes it under what dispensation? Old Testament or New Testament? Which means that it will find its perfect explanation where? In his resurrection. Every ordinance finds its explanation in his resurrection. So when he was breaking, when he was breaking bread, he said, this is my flesh. He didn't say this is bread. Right? This is my flesh broken for you. Do this as often as you do in remembrance of me. Praise the Lord. So now we have turned it into something else. We have communion service for healing. We have communion service to break deliverance or to break... What? Every ordinance finds its completion in Christ Jesus. Water baptism, communion, name another one. Blood of sprinkling, feet washing, all of them find their completion. We're not herbalists. Are you getting what I'm saying? So, listen, I thought like this and then somebody came and said, how can you, you know, I, I once spoke about the anointing oil this way. I said, whatever anointing they did in the Old Testament was culminated in Christ. So how can you say that? Are you saying that there's no power in the anointing oil? And I said, let's do an example. Go to the market. Buy Goya bottle of oil. When you buy that Goya bottle of oil, carry it to the cemetery and pour it. Let it raise the dead. He said, no, now you have to pray on it first. Does the practice itself not tell you that it's redundant? Because the oil, the bottle of oil in itself had no power until you prayed over it. Is that true? Yes, sir. Which means the power was not in the oil, but in the person that prayed. Yes, sir. That means I could have just prayed. Yes, sir. I didn't need the oil. Yes, Lord. Ah, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I understand that for so many people, they might need mediums like that, handkerchiefs, anointing oil bottles, to express their faith. And for those people, I understand. But how long will it take you to grow up? I'm sorry if this is, if it looks like I'm entering your case. I'm not. I'm not speaking to anybody directly. But how long will it take you to grow up? Every single time. Things that you can fix by prayer. You're running pillar to post looking for who will give you holy holy water. (laughs) That they fetch from the tap. Praise Jesus. Any teaching that presents a mysterious God is not a New Testament teaching. God, you know, there was a man that said that God gave us 66 books by which we know him. We can't claim that he doesn't want to be known. His system, have you read the Bible before? Have you read the New Testament? See, let me tell you, if you, if you, if you didn't know how to read the New Testament, and then after this teaching, you actually settle down and all the things we're teaching you, you put them to good use. When you read the New Testament, you will marvel at how good God is and how intelligent, because his plan is flawless. Praise the Lord. 
Romans chapter 16, verse 25 to 26. Romans chapter 16, from verse 25 to 26. Romans chapter 16. Is it still hot? It's better now, right? All right. Romans chapter 16, from verse 25 to 26. Did I say 25 to 26? All right. All right. He says, Now to him who has power to strengthen you, according to my gospel, Paul was speaking, and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the sacred what? Um, in the KJV, it actually calls it revelation of the mystery. You see that? So the New Testament is the revelation. The gospel of Christ is the revelation of the mystery. Are you getting it now? Good. According to the revelation of the sacred secret, kept silent for long ages, but now revealed. Say, but now revealed. revealed. Say, "But but now revealed. So this will tell you something. Have you ever wondered why it seems like the God of the New Testament is different from the God of the Old Testament? It looks almost seems like the God of the Old Testament was this angry dude who wanted to smite everybody who came by him. And, but when you read the New Testament, you then see the true nature of God. Do you understand? You see, because let me tell you something. If you read the Old Testament and you read the prophets and you read their interactions with God, it always almost seemed like the prophet's understanding of God was contrary to who God was every other time. Because, let's, let's do this now. The God of the Old Testament, was it not out of character for the God of the Old Testament to send the prophet to warn the people of Nineveh? Think about it. I mean, you hear the story of um, the sons of Korah. You know the sons of, um, sons of Korah? The ones that said to Moses, that, ah, who made you um, leader over us? And what kind of nonsense is that? How can you be telling us what to do? The Bible says as they were still speaking, the ground opened up and swallowed them. Or you read of Elijah. Elijah is easily my favorite Old Testament character. By far. Easily my favorite. He was the most dramatic. You read of Elijah that called 450 prophets of Baal. Called, he, he called them. Did not come and look for him. He went to look for them. Say, come, you guys, gather with me. Come with me. And then he called them to this place, built two altars made of stone, and said, let's do a, let's do a game. Call down fire. I will call down fire. The God that answers by fire, let him be God. Let's go. <laughs> and so these guys start cutting their bodies, tearing themselves. You, first of all, you have to be mad to worship a God who demands that you cut your body like that. You have to be really mad. They were cutting their bodies, tearing themselves apart, tearing, and then and Elijah was taunting them. Elijah was a strange guy. He didn't even think to himself that, ah, let me not say anything in case my own does not work. Everybody just go quietly. <laughs> no, he was taunting them. He said, call louder, maybe he's sleeping. And then they two foolish people, they start shouting the more. Oba! <laughs> And then when they had cried, they said, oh, it's enough, it's enough. And so Elijah called down fire from heaven. And it consumed the sacrifice, dried up the water in the trenches, and consumed the stone. That's my favorite part. 
Do you know that when buildings burn down, the foundations don't burn? Because they're made of stone. And stone does not burn. <laughs> Elijah consumed it. He said, ah, what's going on? Consume everything. Now, he didn't stop there. He chased 450 of them and killed all of them. Alone. God of the Old Testament. So, was it not out of character? I mean, the God that rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. Was it not out of character for him? So then look at Nineveh. That was incredibly and terribly sinful. And sent Jonah to Nineveh. So go and warn them. God of fire and brimstone. You just wake up and just see fire falling from the sky. You just know that Nineveh is no longer existing. Why was it that way? Because a lot of the things that they ascribed to God in the Old Testament, they ascribed to him without knowing who he was. So things that he didn't do, they said he did. So for instance, God gave Saul a commandment when he was going to go and conquer a particular country. Told them, don't carry anything. Don't carry um, animals. Don't carry the weight. Just conquer and conquer in peace. Saul went and and went to carry gold and ram. Said he would offer all the rams. First Samuel 15, remember that? He would offer all the rams as sacrifice. And then after that, there's a very, very interesting thing that happened that the Old Testament records. It says that an evil spirit from the Lord came upon. Does that not sound ironic? Now, a lot of people will read that and say, hmm, God is dangerous. Oh. Hmm. That did you not read that he sent an evil spirit to go and possess her? Then you make a whole lot of teaching out of it. That sometimes what is happening to you, it might not be working against you, but working in you by the Lord. Glory to God. Sometimes that evil spirit is from the Lord. Turn to your neighbor and tell your neighbor it's an evil spirit from the Lord. Tell five people it's an evil spirit from the Lord. But then you go to the New Testament and it says, all good and perfect gifts come from God in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Oh, okay. It seems like both informations contradict one another. But whose information should we take? Should we take the hidden secrets or the revelation of the hidden secrets? So what happened to Saul, you may ask me? Demons. Demons. <laughs> they still exist. They existed. But do you know that in the Old Testament, Satan is mentioned only once? Yes, only in the book of Job. Once. Every other thing that happened, every other place, whether it was the devil, demons, it was God that did it. This is why <laughs> there are some songs that we sing. Um, Power us of old. This. You don't understand. So, the, the sons of thunder, God, I don't have time. <laughs> the sons of thunder went through a particular city. And then they chased them out. And then these sons of thunder, remembering Elijah's episode with the 450 prophets of Baal, they came out and said to Jesus, that let us call down fire from heaven and consume these ones. And then Jesus said to them, you don't know what spirit you are of. 
in rebuking them, Jesus rebuked Elijah. Do you understand this? First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. We're going to end this teaching by 11.45, so God help me. Because I have, so I want to say that what I've been doing is sort of like the introduction to the teaching. (laughs) Sort of. First Corinthians chapter 2 verse 7. Let's do, let's do a very beautiful Bible study. He says, on the contrary, he says, we speak, who is we? The apostles. He's not talking about every Christian. He's talking about the apostles. So he says, on the contrary, we, the apostles, speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery which God predestined before the ages for our glory. So he's talking about the Old Testament, right? Next verse. None of the rulers of this age knew it. For if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So this is something very interesting. When you read from the New Testament back into the Old Testament, some of those weird prophecies begin to make more sense. Does it make sense? So you hear Isaiah say, For unto us a child is born unto us, the son is given, and the government shall be upon the shoulder, and will be called wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace. You know that. And then I'm too sure that when they heard Isaiah saying, they said, what's wrong with this guy? But when we see Jesus born, his prophecy makes more sense now. You hear David, out of the blues, Eloi, Eloi, Lamassa, back to thee, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm, Psalm 22. And he was like, God hasn't forsaken this guy. If anything, he stole somebody's wife and then killed the man. You know that's why he wrote Psalm 22. After he killed, um, is it Uriah or Uzziah? That is his name, Uriah. Yeah, after he killed the guy. Why are you saying that God has forsaken you? You deserve to be forsaken. But it makes more sense, or it would, it would now make more sense when Jesus was on the cross and he cried it out loud. Oh, okay. This is why David was writing. He didn't know. So, he says it was hidden. It was a secret. The rulers of the age, the rulers of the age, I'm not referring to kings of this world, but demons and the devils that planned the crucifixion of Jesus. He says, if they had known, they would not have crucified Jesus. If they could see the mystery revealed, they would not have crucified, because they would have known that the crucifixion of Jesus was working against them. Right? Now, verse 9, very popular verse. Everybody read verse 9 together. One, two, go. Brothers and sisters, has God done anything for you? I has not seen where he's taking you to. You think you have a Corolla now? You will drive a Benz in Jesus' name. Because eyes have not seen. Question, have we not seen Benz before? (laughs) So the popular connotation of this verse of scripture is not what it means. When he said eyes has not seen, what was he referring to? Come on now, what was he referring to? Take a sheet of paper. Let's write test. (laughs) What was he referring to? He said it before. That there were, we speak God's wisdom, his hidden wisdom in a mystery. The mystery that he hid in the ages, that if the rulers of the age knew, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That is what eyes did not see or ears did not hear. Do you understand it? Eyes did not see it. Ears did not hear it. It did not enter into the heart of men. Guess what? He did not say that mouths did not speak it. Why didn't he say it? Because mouths proclaimed it. 
But eyes couldn't see what mouths were saying. Do you get it? Prophecies were proclaimed everywhere about the coming of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and all of this. But the devil could not see it. Men could not see it. He was referring to the Old Testament. Praise the Lord. So when you want to use this verse of scripture next time, know what it means. In fact, next verse. Everybody read together. One, two, go. So what eyes had not seen or ears had not heard or things that hadn't entered into the hearts of men, God has now done what? So next time somebody comes to say, brother, what God is about to do in your life, eyes has not seen, ears have not heard. Just wait for him to finish. Then when he finishes, you now say, but God has revealed them by the Spirit. Are you getting it now? This is the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament is the dispensation of the revelation of the mysteries. The Old Testament, things were hidden. God hid the plan so that the devil would not see it. Men would not thwart it. He hid it carefully and very intelligently. Do you understand? When you now turn to the New Testament, you now begin to see everything that was hidden. I mean... The, the, the children of Israel glorified themselves in the glory of their temple. Built the temple from gold. The, um, it was said that you wouldn't hear a hammer sound in the place because they didn't nail anything. They crafted and molded everything out of choice stones, gold. You have granite, marble everywhere. The temple was glorious. But the temple was a metaphor because Jesus stood one day, looked at the temple. He said, you see this temple? He says, bring it down. In three days, I will raise it up. The glory of the temple was a metaphor of the glory of the risen king. Are you seeing this? And, oh. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I don't have time to do this. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 to 4. If I had time, I would have taken us to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, where it says, um, we have the mind of Christ. I'd have taken time to explain that to you because a lot of people say, um, you are going to write the exam. I have the mind of Christ. But the mind of Christ has nothing to do with your exams. <laughs> the mind of Christ was talking about, I have the revelation of Christ Jesus. It's actually, is in line with what we were reading. It's, it's not hard to understand. Anyway, um, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 to 4. Are you there? All right, it says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, next verse, verse 3 and 4. He says, Everybody read together, one to go. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby... So when Paul was writing the book of Ephesians, this is what he's saying. I'm writing this to you so that when you read it, you will understand my knowledge in this mystery. Is that true? So when I, hope, when I um, handle the book of Ephesians, when I hold it and I handle the book of Ephesians, I 
I should handle it with the intention to understand it. Does that make sense? When I open the Bible to read, especially the New Testament, I must open it with the intention to understand it. So that entire thing, that teaching that says one verse of scripture, my God, I've been milking this verse for three years now. Look, I can understand if what you are trying to say is that the reality of what you have understood keeps, you know, there's a way, it's a work of the spirit, really, how you know something, but as life happens to you, what you know becomes more real to you. Does that happen to anybody? Uh So there's that possibility. But if that's what you are saying, then kudos to you for milking it for three years. But if what you are saying is every day I read this and I see something new, then you are reading it the wrong way. Imagine if you wrote your exams like that. Just imagine. What are we supposed to write in exam? Lecturer will tell you, read chapter 3, 4, 5. Then you now meet lecturer and say, ha, this chapter 3 is depot. I've been milking this chapter 3 for 3 weeks. He said 3, 4, 5. You will fail exam. You and your milk will fail. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Which means, and this takes me to something I'll just do briefly and then we'll wrap up. That every barrier to biblical interpretation is man-made. From God's own end, he wants the Bible to be understood. But every barrier to biblical interpretation is man-made. So, um, we'll spend the next few minutes talking about barriers to biblical interpretation. I'm not going to list all of them. I think I just have time to talk about three or two. But uh, wherever we stop, we stop there. But um, common barriers to biblical interpretation. Common barriers to biblical interpretation. Common barriers to biblical interpretation. Why am I teaching you this? My plan is that, remember, we started by talking about how we want your progress and joy. Progress is important. But you cannot progress if you cannot read the Bible. I'm sorry, you can't. If, it doesn't matter how many angels you see. If you don't know scripture, you are not growing. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Yes, number one, common barriers to biblical interpretation, number one. Um, media team, could you help me? So as I call the barrier, could you just put it up on the screen for them? This might, this might stress you. Is it possible with me if it is? All right, good. Number one, language. Number one, language. Number one, language. Language is a common barrier to biblical interpretation. Number one, language. So, for instance, uh, so to talk about that, the Bible was written. Uh, I think you should itemize it. Number one, language. Um, the Bible was written in three languages, right? Yoruba, Igbo, and Hausa. Is that it? English, Spanish, and Dutch. All right. The Bible was written in what three languages? Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Good. The New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. Now, why is this important? It's important because different languages have different rules. Does that make sense? So, for example... If you are Igbo, I'm Igbo, 
and you know how to count in Igbo. When you get to um, 30, if you want to count the number 30 in Igbo, is Iriato, which means three tens. In English, it is just 30. Do you understand? The rule of counting in Igbo is different from the rule of counting in English. Do you get that? It's just language. I'm just using that as an, as an example. And so, in, or, or another example, have you seen this common meme that says in French, if we want to say I miss you, um, we actually say you are missing from me. It's a sentence, it's syntax, the way the sentence is constructed. Now, the issue is with translation sometimes, the, the, the translators many times are not indigenous speakers of the language they're translating from. For instance, you hardly find an indigenous speaker of Aramaic because Aramaic is a dead language now. It's a language that people no longer use. Do you get it? So anybody who is translating from Aramaic learned it. And so as it is with um, non-indigenous speakers, many times you might translate word for word. Do you get what I mean? So for instance, imagine that French guy. He, he has a lady that he wants to toast. She speaks English. He speaks French. So he calls Prince Will because Prince Will speaks both French and English. Do you know Prince Will speaks both French and English? Wave at us, please. It's a skill. Be proud of it. Good. So he calls Prince Will and he says, Prince Will, be my middleman. And so he says, I miss you in French. Now, Prince Will is not an indigenous speaker. He, he learns it. So he doesn't know well enough to translate I miss you to I miss you in English. So what he says is, he says I should tell you that you're missing from him. You know how weird that's going to sound to the lady? That's what happens in Bible translation several times. And that's the reason why many times when Bible teachers are teaching, even doctrine, um, theologians, many times they would um, cite the original word that was used there. Today, I tried my best to avoid using Greek words by telling you switch translation. That's why translations sometimes have different um, words in the same place. So, for instance, um, the one we started with, 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God. The word there in the Greek is the word prokope. And prokope actually, actually means to study. But in the context within which Paul used it, he was saying, be diligent. So some translators, especially if you have an indigenous speaker, will say, oh, what he's saying here, I know it looks like study, but it's not study he's saying. He's saying, be diligent. But then some other translators will say, oh, no, the word is study, use the word study. Some, some translations like the Amplified will say, see, well, we don't know, study. Be diligent. So they'll write study in brackets. Be diligent. Give due diligence. <laughs> so language is a big barrier. But not only do you have a translation problem from the original Greek, because that can easily be solved, get an indigenous speaker. You now have, you know, the Bible wasn't first translated to English. I know it shocks a lot of people, but it wasn't. It was first translated to, I think, Latin. Then um, many languages, even um, German before English, right? Now, it was first translated to English 400 years ago, which is quite recent. 
in the 1600s. And as at the time it was translated to English in the 1600s, English was different. It's true. Do you know the language is still evolving? Till today, till today. There are some words that are now acceptable in formal writing that started out as slangs. Do you get? Now, for instance, if there are some dictionaries that will now include um, phrases like LOL. As official phrases now, LOL or LMAO, you know. So, when it was first translated to English, it was a different English. So, you have words like thou or thine or hast or should, shouldest or wouldest or couldest, you know. Those words have their um, counterparts. In modern English. The problem though. Is that there is this. Occult like following. That behind the KJV Bible. There are some people that believe. That if it is not the KJV. It's not correct. Right. If you want to believe that. It's fine. Provided that. You will. You will. Understand what the KJV writers are writing. Because there's a language barrier between you and them. Common example, John 3.16. John, I know, I know you know it, but let's put it up on the screen. John 3.16. Are you learning something today? Yes, sir. All right, John 3.16. Everybody read John 3.16 once ago. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now, a lot of people read John 3.16 and the first line reads like this to them. God's love was so much for the world. He could not contain that love anymore, so he gave his son. Honestly, if that's what you think it is, raise your hand. Good. Thank you for being honest because many people when I form my hand. You want, you want them, Barat? Thank you. Anyway, now, from the same writer, 1 John 3.16, you will see something interesting. Language creates a barrier sometimes. 1 John 3.16. That's 1 John 3.16. Why are we wasting time? Ogachuks. All right. Look at this. Hereby... Perceive we the love of God. Are you seeing it? Hereby perceive we the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, now, it begins to show you the original intention of the writer when he was writing John 3.16. And this is interesting because he wrote the two books within one week. So the two books start alike and sound alike. First John, um, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. First John 1, 1. That which we have seen about the Word of life, we have tasted, we have handled about the Word of life, is what we proclaim to you. It's the same thing he's writing in both books. That's how he starts his books. Now, go back to John chapter 3, verse 16. And do we have the NLT media team? Wave at me if we have the NLT. All right, great. Now, put up John chapter 3, verse 16 in the NLT. 
Everybody read together, one, two, go. No, John 3.16, not First John. John 3.16. All right, everybody read together. No, this is NLT. This is wrong. <laughs> this is wrong. HCSB, please. All right, this is better. Everybody read this together, one, two, go. Stop. So, for instance, um, the difference between the idea that is connoted in KJV and the NLT 3000, which is what you put up for me, and um, later versions of NLT and HCSB is this. In the KJV, the love of God speaks to magnitude. Do you understand? For God so loved the world, speaks to magnitude. But what the author intended speaks to manner, not magnitude. Do you get? He wasn't saying God's love for the world was so much that he could not contain it again. He loved the world so they he concerned is not make you go die. No. What he was saying is, this is how we know God's love. He sent his son to die. Do you get the difference now? Now, the reason why we switch translations and not going through the Greek routes is because if we go through the Greek route, it's just long and unnecessary. But even when you read the original Greek, the way the writer intended it, and you read the transliteration, that is word for word, what was he saying? The writer said, hearing is God's love known. He gave his son to die. Do you understand now? So, language can many times be a barrier. And this is just a little example. There are still so many. There's one popular one I use, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1. You remember that one? Uh So, Proverbs, or should we use it? All right, let's do it. Proverbs 18, 1, KJV. Proverbs 18.1, KGV. All right, it says, Through desire, a man having separated himself, seeketh and intermeddleth with all wisdom. And then somebody reads this. And I remember back then in school, we used to use this to do prayer points. Um, um, when, when we want to pray for wisdom, we pray, God, um, first of all, read this scripture. And then the, the teaching is, if you desire wisdom, you will get wisdom. That's what it looks like, right? Now, put it up in the HCSB or NLT or some other newer translation. All right, everybody read together one to go. One who isolates himself pursues selfish desires. He rebels against all sound. Does it look like the same? <laughs> they don't look alike, do they? The reason why they look so different is because the KJV is actually saying this. The KJV is not saying something different. You just don't understand. The word intermedless is not a good word. Do you get? The word, we subconsciously, you know that thing that happens when you read novels and you see words that you don't know, so you extrapolate or interpolate the meaning of the word by every other word around it. That's what we did there. Subconsciously, you just read true desire, a man having separated himself, that's not a bad thing. Secret and intermediate is all wisdom. That means, I don't know what intermediate really is, but it should mean that if he should seek it, he will find it. That's what it means. 
So that's what, it, that's, what, that's what we take the KJV to mean. Until you read some other newer translation that speaks the English you speak. Do you understand? Um, there's another one. Um, is it First Corinthians? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I think it's verse 15. Um, where he says, the love of God com- constraineth us. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, the love, verse 14. He says, the love of God constraineth us. Well, okay. He says, for the love of Christ constraineth us. The word constraineth in your mind. Is it not to hold back? But if you read newer translations, it says the, the love of Christ compels us. Are you seeing it? He's saying, okay, okay. He says, for Christ's love compels us. So what he was saying is Christ's love pushes us to do something. But the way KJV wrote it, the word constraineth in Old English might might mean compel. We don't know. But the way it seems to us is that love of Christ is hindering us from doing something. That there's a way God will love people, that he will hinder us from reaching out. Do you know it doesn't make sense? So language, language can many times be a very strong barrier to biblical interpretation. I'll just take, I'll just take the second one and we'll end here because of time. The second is cultural context. We're going to read, we're going to read I think five or six portions of scripture. See, Bible study is woko. Are you hearing me? It's woko. It's not just open it and say, this is what it means. This is what I believe it means. And then you walk. No. You want to sit down and be careful to understand it. Because you believe that that's where life comes from. All right. So let's do six scriptures. Romans chapter 16, verse 16. So, media team, you have to be super fast. So, this is what I will do. Write down the scriptures so that you prepare them as you are reading them, right? So, Romans 16, 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 12, 2 Corinthians 13, 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, 1 Peter 5, 14. I'll take it again. Romans 16, 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 20, 2 Corinthians 13, 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, 1 Peter 5.14, and then lastly, Luke 7.45. Have you written it down? Wave at me if you have. All right. Okay, everybody read together, want to go. Greet one another with what? Power. Somebody say power. Good. This is, this is an apostolic instruction. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And in this church, we obey so maybe there's one babe that you have been timing. Pastor, when I say, greet one another with the Holy Spirit. Pastor said we should do it. I'm just joking. He says, all the churches of Christ send you greetings. Next verse. Um, next, First um, Corinthians 16, 20, please. All right, everybody read together. I want to go. All the brothers greet you. Greet. Amazing. 2 Corinthians 13, 12. Everybody want to go. Greet one another with what? All the saints do what? 1 Thessalonians 5, 26. 
5.26, not 28. All right, everybody, one, two, go. I like this one. It's for brothers now. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Now, in case you think Paul was a weird guy, because all of these we've been reading is Paul, but First Peter 5.14. So now we are roping Peter too in. All right, everybody read together one to go. Greet one another with what? Now, I like Peter's own. Because Paul was telling everybody to greet everybody with holy kiss. Peter said, nah, what's that? That's holy kiss. Kiss of love. Power. Glory to God. Luke 7.45. So Paul was weird. Peter was weird. Here's another weird guy. 45. Everybody read together one to go. Who is talking? Who now? Save your chest. Who is talking? Jesus was the one talking. He said, you gave me no what? But she hasn't done what? I katabate kopata. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Do you get the point yet? In Bible interpretation... You must understand that culture plays a huge role. Have you seen all those Arab movies or Middle Eastern nations where when they want to greet you, they hold your face, plant a kiss here and plant a kiss and give you a hug? Have you seen that? That's what they're talking about here. Because Israel is a Middle Eastern nation. Do you understand? At the time, they were even closer to Palestine. So he was saying, greet each other with a holy kiss. It was a cultural thing. One, Two, kiss did not mean the same thing then and now. Do you understand? So, I don't want you to picture an early church where you just walk into church and French, kiss one another and move to the next person. And boys not doing Praise the Lord. Culture plays a huge role in Bible interpretation. So the people who were writing, what was their culture? When he said, greet one another with a holy kiss, was he talking to you? <laughs> in our time, that, that expression of affection is different. We give each other hugs. If a hug is too intimate, you give someone a handshake, a high five, a fist bump. So if I was to write this letter, I would have said, oh, say hi to everyone for me. Or give each other a hug. Show each other affection. Because I'm writing to people in my time. If in 20, 30, 100, 200 years time, a hug has now become an overly intimate way of showing affection, my context would differ from theirs. Do you understand that now? So there's something called cultural context. So, for instance, I'm not going to dwell too much on this. There's this scripture about ladies covering their hair in church. Women, it's cultural. How do we know? Paul starts writing a letter about how the head of a woman is the man. The head of the man is God. If a woman prays with her head uncovered, she dishonors her head. The man. First of all, he wasn't talking to all women. He was talking to women that are accounted for by men. That is married women. Do you understand that? 
Secondly, in Jewish culture, married women were supposed to move around with their heads covered. It was a show that they were married. If as a married person, your head was uncovered, you're an adulteress. It's much like what I'm doing right now by putting on a ring on my wedding finger. It shows I'm married. Do you get it? Uh Uh-huh. So, so some people, you know, some people see pictures of church and they're like, why is it that ladies are not covering their hair? There are not, many of them are not. They're married, wave at, wave at me. Only my wife that can wave. Praise Jesus. And then even if you were married, it's not, in our culture, it's not a show of marriage. It's not. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, cultural context has, and this is, this is a mountain that many people go to die on top of. Cultural context has a huge role to play in, in the way we interpret the Bible. Men should not wear women's clothing. Women should not wear men's clothing. You've heard that before, right? And I say, ah, women that are wearing trousers are going to hell. Do you know that the person who wrote that was wearing a gown when he wrote it? You know that, right? They didn't have, I don't think they had trousers. And up until the 1600s, or trousers were feminine and Gowns were masculine. Right? Also, the Bible's regulation on dressing is modesty and decency. Really, which is more modest for a woman to wear? You're an engineer as a woman. You want to climb Nepal pole and you want to go and do things. Trousers or skirt? <laughs> Shorts, right? Have you seen, have you seen skirts before? That's worse than trousers. You tie tissue paper on your body and be walking up and down the road. Say, so, yeah, you are And those type of people, they will say, ah, but I'm not wearing trousers now. You are worse. You know what annoys me? Ladies, I, I don't think anybody in this church, if you do it, stop it. You wear extremely short skirt and you're not be doing like this on the road. If you wanted to be naked, then be, do it to your chest. I'll be pulling the thing down. <laughs> Why don't you just cover yourself properly? Praise the Lord. So when it comes to Bible knowledge, cultural context matters a lot. Greet one another with the holy kiss. Doesn't mean as we are going out now. Someone now stand at the door. Thank you for coming to service. Thank you for coming to service. <laughs> Praise the Lord. It had its cultural connotations. And as, as many things in the scriptures have their cultural connotation. So when you're studying scripture, you study with that at the back of your mind. Um, one third one. Let me see if I can squeeze it in. Ooh, three minutes, I promise. I'll try. Is figures of speech. Figures of speech. It seems simple. But I have no idea why people don't understand this. Figures of speech. So imagine if, let me see, let me try and use a name that nobody in this church bears, Jatalakus. So imagine if I was talking with Jason, and I said, did you hear about Jatalakus? And then he says, what happened to him? And then Jason says, oh, he kicked the bucket. How ridiculous if I not, if it will it be if I now say, hope you not enjoy his leg. <laughs> ridiculous, right? Because everybody expects me to understand that if you say he kicked the bucket, you tell me he died. So it is with some portions of scripture where Jesus says, I am the vine 
And my father is the vine dresser. He was speaking figuratively. Do you understand that? He is not a tree. Because many strange rumors come from this misunderstanding that the Bible does employ figures of speech. So Paul was speaking. He said, though I speak in tongues of men and tongues of angels, and I have not love, I am um, I'm, I'm nothing I'm, but a loud sounding symbol. When I say brothers and sisters, I want to show you a mystery. Do you know that there's, a tongue, there's tongues of men and there's tongues of angels? Why will angels speak in tongues? Why? Why? Are they filled with the Holy Ghost? So why are they speaking in tongues? The tongues of angels. It was a figure of speech. All of us have done it before. You know when you tell somebody, if you like, roll on the floor. I'm not, you don't expect them to roll on the floor, do you? You're just telling them that no matter how much you beg me, I'm not doing it. Right? That's what Paul was doing there. If you like speaking tongues of men, no. if you like, go and borrow tongues of angels. If you don't have love, you're a loud sounding symbol. Do you understand that? It's simple, right? When he said, do I give my body to be burned? He wasn't going to burn your body. Figure of speech. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's figurative. I am the door. It's figurative. I am the bread of life. Figurative. <laughs> do you understand? And nobody gives you advance warning. You know, some people say if it was, they would have told us it was being figurative. So imagine I would say, okay, back to my, my conversation with Jason. Do you hear what happened to Jason? What happened? Ha, I want to speak figuratively now. Can I speak figuratively? He kicked the bucket. <laughs> Wouldn't that be weird? That, okay, I'm about to use figure of speech. He kicked the bucket. Idiomatic expression. He ki- <laughs> so just like in everyday conversations, when you study the Bible, you want to look out for figures of speech. As wise as a serpent, as gentle as doves. Another interesting one, the Holy Ghost descended as a dove. It does not mean he was a dove. It was a figure of speech. What was the figure of speech? That the prophet saw the Spirit of God descend straight down and rest gently on him. It's just like in geography terms. How many of you remember geography as the crow flies? How many of you remember that? As the crow flies. When they say draw a line or calculate distance as the crow flies between A and B. It means a straight line. Because crows fly in a straight line. Figure of speech. I said the Holy Ghost is a dove. He's not a dove. The Holy Ghost is a hammer. I've heard of those things before. Praise the Lord. Thank you for listening. For more, head over to circlechurchglobal.org or visit any of the church campus addresses on the website. God bless you.